The following presentation consists of systematically developed statements to assist medical professionals in medical decision making for specific clinical conditions, but are in no way a substitute for a medical professional's independent judgment and should not be considered medical advice. Most of the content herein is based on current literature reviews. In areas of uncertainty, professional judgment was applied. This presentation is a working document that reflects the view of the presenter at the time of publication. Because rapid changes in medicine are expected, periodic revisions are inevitable. We encourage medical professionals to use this information in conjunction with and not as a replacement for their best clinical judgment. These presentations may not be appropriate in all situations. Any decision by practitioners to apply the information in this presentation must be made in light of local resources and individual patient circumstances. Welcome back. Uh, this is probably the most important component of this mini-symposium. Uh, you've already heard Dr. Schwartz uh, tell us about the history of hypertension. I've reviewed the SPRINT study and now we're really going to find out the, I think, the most important uh, component is and how will this reflect on patient care. Um, and we couldn't have a more erudite and more appropriate um, group of people to discuss this. We have Dr. Thomas McGinn, who is chairman of uh, medicine at the Northwell Hofstra School of Medicine. We have Dr. Stephen Fishbane, who is chairman of nephrology, vice president of dialysis services and professor of medicine and Dr. Schwartz, you've already been introduced to. So I'm going to ask just a couple of questions, and then we'll see if we can come to con some consensus on uh, how we should be approaching patients in hypertension. And that's the general question is, gentlemen, what did you think about the SPRINT study? One of you. You know, I think like most clinical trials, um, it was a valiant and uh, very important attempt to understand the question that's... Uh, that plagues us in terms of clinical practice of patients. So I think it was very well designed for the intent. And it's not the first try, as we know, to get at this question. But there were certain problems in terms of the population excluded. I'll let others speak a little bit more how they see that part of it. But it might be that for understanding the trial in terms of clinical practice, that the excluded patients here maybe is the more, most difficult part in helping us understand how to take this information and do what we do as doctors, which is to bring it to our individual patients in treatment. I would agree. The, uh, I think it provides some information, but it's fairly limited. It's limited in scope. The patient population is very restricted. There are a lot of exclusion criteria that would eliminate many of the patients we actually see. Uh, and the uh, trial was terminated early, so we don't really know what the long-term impact would be. Uh, and I think we have to draw whatever conclusions we come away with from this in a fairly narrow uh, scope. I mean, I would just echo what was being said. I think that um, the, the term we sometimes use for a trial like this is an attempt to get biological purity in the sense that it got down to a group of people uh, excluded those people that would either not comply or had other conditions and narrowed it down to a, a group of people that would respond to this sort of therapy. And so within that narrow group of people, we know there's some benefit. But the bottom line is we all practice in a complex environment. I'm a general internist. Uh, I don't think I see a patient that uh, is without at least two or three comorbid conditions. 
And, and so I get concerned that this sort of trial cannot be soundbite material. You cannot summarize this trial in, oh, lower is better. Uh, it's a much more complicated conversation. So um, I'm concerned about the trial and, the, and what the harm it could do uh, more than uh, the benefit we're going to get from it. Okay, so we have a study. We have a study that, as you heard, excluded, uh, we know of 2,200 people that were difficult to control on many medications. We have people who has uh, more occult hypotension. And we also know that this study is going to undoubtedly uh, result in changes in recommendations. And we're all going to be called upon to treat patients. So again, the most important question is, how will this influence, how gentlemen, how is this going to influence your approach to patient care? Um, well, maybe I'll go first again, and we'll see how this goes. I think that it, your question is approach is the right question, and um, the issue here was what are we targeting, not you know what are we treating. The target is that the, the intervention in this trial was we targeted to get somewhere, and we may not have gotten there, but we attempted to get to to this blood pressure at one twenty. Um, you know, I think that in relatively healthy hypertensives, uh, it is not it is probably worthwhile trying to get lower than we had previously. Uh, but I think for older uh, folks with comorbidities, I don't see this as influencing how I think about those patients. I would not probably push down to a lower blood pressure in, in, in older patients with uh, multiple complex problems. Yeah, I, I would agree. And, um, you know, I think it's, I mean, th this is what we do as doctors, right? I mean, it's trying to understand the scientific information in the context of the patient who's in front of us at that moment. Um, I think, you know, I heard having something that you said there that maybe it would make a lot of sense for us at some point to come back and think about how guideline groups and everybody that relies on guideline groups are going to use this information. But, you know, for me, this is like a lot of clinical trials. And in fact, in any clinical trial, you're going to see some patients that benefit. You're going to see some patients that are hurt. And a lot of patients that aren't affected much. So to what extent are we as clinicians able to use that information when we've got the patient in front of us and use the characteristics of that patient to understand how to treat? And in the treatment of hypertension, this is particularly important because we understand the characteristics of the patient, and sometimes it's fairly straightforward. If I have somebody who's got a blood pressure of 150 over 90 and they're on perhaps a diuretic, there's not a lot of comorbidity. Um, I think that this study is fairly helpful to me in thinking that getting to a blood pressure of 120 systolic might be helpful not just over the 3.2 years of follow-up that they had, but maybe over the long term of treatment. Um, and in fact, you know, we have to again remind ourselves that one of the great, great gains in public health in this country has been in the treatment of hypertension and the tremendous reduction of strokes and 
heart attacks in this country. But then you get the kind of patients that uh, Rick and I probably treat a little bit more often as nephrologists, and you certainly see as well. The patient who's got a blood pressure, two weeks ago in my office I had somebody with a 190 over 120 blood pressure. They were on three medications and he had cerebrovascular disease. And we were talking about this, and I, he didn't know about the SPRINT trial. I alluded to it about how are you gonna get to a 120 blood pressure and are there benefits? And you know, I think in this area in particular, that the journey of how you get there might be really important. And we can't tell that from a trial like this. It mixes all the patients together and we come up with a general answer that maybe applies to the simpler patients that were treated. But I've always believed in my career, and I still do, that it's much harder for patients like this, and there's much, much greater risk as we try to balance benefit and risk for hurting a patient such as this. It, it reminds me, um, I took a trip to Bali a couple of years ago, and it's a paradise, and it's a great place to <laughs> be. That'll lower your blood pressure. And maybe yeah, a 120 blood this pressure. This reminded you of a trip to Bali? Yeah. <laughs> maybe a 120 blood pressure is a great place to be. And Bali is a great place to be if you come from Australia or if you come from China. It's an easy journey to get there, like somebody with a 150 systolic blood pressure. But for me, going 35 hours to get there, um, like the patient with a 190 blood pressure, I think there's much, much greater chance of hurting the patients. I didn't enjoy Bali, and I don't think that for the more difficult patient, lowering the blood pressure you, to I, 120. To try to mix it up a little here, do you think, that, I don't even think this patient would have been eligible to be in this trial. So I, I, I don't think this, to me, and this is in all due respect to my nephrology colleagues, that most of the patients you see would be have been excluded from Absolutely. this trial. Absolutely. You guys yeah. shouldn't be entertaining. For me, sprain has nothing to do with nephrologists. You know, that's you're, in, you're in, absolutely in a, right in a, in a controversial way. That, and that's the, uh, they're more on the primary care side because I, I think the opposite. I think this group is so narrowly defined that that's the inherent problem that we have yeah. a group where non-compliant patients were really, diabetics were excluded, Stroke heart failure patients. patients, and you know. Um, that, you know, I'd even argue for most internists who I call specialists in complex adult care, those patients are mostly, it's really, you know, family practitioners, nurse practitioners who are seeing the first time diagnosed mild hypertensive, who they're starting, maybe I should start a diuretic, um, you know, that, that is, I, know, I completely I, and agree. again, I don't mean to. No, yeah. but this is one of the comments that I made in my presentation when they talked about the general population. I don't know who that is. Yeah. I, don't, I don't see those people. Uh, and and even in this so-called general population, this is between the age of 50 and 80. I'm sorry, a 50-year-old and an 80-year-old are not comparable. Right. And I would not treat a 50-year-old the same way I would treat an 80-year-old. Yeah. So even in the so-called general population, you have to, I, I think we would all agree that one size does not fit all. That's to the, is for a second, the in the, they make a, a, a point in the sprint trial to show that the outcomes are no different between the 50-year-olds and the 75-year-olds, which we as clinicians have difficulty in accepting. So I think it's going to be controversial. Well, I think so, what, to that point, though, I think is what they, they and, and it, it doesn't jive with our clinical experience because they've excluded the six, seven-year-olds. So the 70 year olds that we see so now they usually have uh, hypertension, diabetes, hypercholesterolemia. Or, so, or, or, or they have BPA. We're going to have a time constraint. I'm going to ask one more question. But this is really directed to you. Uh oh. Okay. Um, and because you really have the largest responsibility. Mm. You are the, a director of medicine 
of an extraordinarily large and complex um, health system. You're making him very nervous. I mean, it, it didn't, he, the weight the weight of responsibility. And no. the question hasn't gotten here. Yet. Where's the question? <laughs> New guidelines are going to come out, right? And there are going to be young internists, and they're going to be multiple hospitals, and you are going to be constrained to make sure that your system uh, meets the guidelines. How are we, how are you, how are chairman of medicine going to make sure that these guidelines as they come out are not misinterpreted mm -hmm. and utilized to get the wrong patients as everybody has discussed right. to the blood pressure goals that will come out? No, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. I mean, and I think, you know, Northwell Health and, you know, all of our ambulatory sites and all of our hospitals are a microcosm of the U.S. health system in some ways, although we are more organized and, and, and far better uh, than, than most of the health system. Um, and it's a challenging question to, to think how does one translate, you know, a publication into action. And, uh, and it's a very um, difficult question. I would say a couple of things. One is I, I actually was just at a conversation yesterday, and I'll leave out the name of the company, but they're trying to uh, tell us that the data and the, the world of research is so complex that we need fancy computers to tell us you know, how to do everything. Now, I actually do work in this area. Um, what I said to them, and they mentioned all the publications every year, how could a doctor keep up with this? It's impossible. Now, that's a, one side of the story. My side of the story is, well, you know, in our clinical practice, in our day-to-day -day lives, there's maybe one or two publications per year that change what I do as a doc. That I get out, I get up in the morning, I read the article in the evening, and I get up in the morning and I do something differently. There are very few of those clinical trials that are published, and those are the ones we need to know inside and out. We need to know the inclusion criteria, we need to know the exclusion criteria, we need to interpret those. This is a, one of those trials. This is a game changer. And I think that uh, it do, it's gonna influence how the guidelines are made, um, actually, there are, you know, well, one thing that we can't wait is for the guideline committee to meet in two years and go to Geneva and then do blah, blah, and then publish. So I think in the interim, we will try to get the message out on this trial with a high degree of caution. Um, I think the number, everyone talks about the number needed to treat in this article is probably anywhere from, you know, depending on how you cut the outcome, it could be over a thousand or it could be less than a thousand. But the number needed to harm is quite high also. So the statistics were 16 will benefit and 22 will be harmed in 1,000 patients in three And that's really concerning. Um, so I think the message on this is know your inclusion exclusion criteria and then take it from there. Um, but if I could add to it, well, I'm the, sorry. The other thing I would say is that obviously a target requires that you're following your patient. And even if you think you know what you're doing when you start, you've got to see how the patient right. tolerates it. Mm -hmm. And there are people in whom you do something that seems totally reasonable, and then they get orthostatic hypertension. They distinguish falls with injury versus falls without injury. Yeah. Or as I'm concerned, that's just a matter of luck. <laughs> a fall is a fall. Yeah. And, and also, we know the fall in the older, sicker patient would have been worse. Absolutely. You know, right. They'd been excluded. So. You know, one the point that I'd like to make, though, because it's you know it's easy to look at a clinical trial like this and understand some of the limitations. It's important that we do that, but only half of patients treated of hypertension in the United States make it to a 140 systolic right. blood pressure. Right. So, 
You know, we do have a responsibility as clinicians and as a health system, I think it's important for us to be generally making sure that to the extent possible where we can get compliance, teach patients appropriately, that we can get them to some target that is healthy for the patient, where the patient feels well and where we're likely to improve mm -hmm. outcomes. Whether 120 systolic fits for many patients, I think, is not going to yeah. there. No, I, I agree with you on that 100%. Um, you could argue that this could get us more to the old target, you know, trying to target the new target, because, uh, yeah. um, the, the, you know, the one one of my favorite um, case examples, which, you know, we talked about a little bit earlier, was the original type 1 diabetes tight control trial. Um, it's an amazing study when you look at the inclusion-exclusion criteria. There are diabetics that we never see. I mean, they're, they're healthy diabetics, they're type 1 diabetics. Um, and the one mortality in that study, but you can't see it unless you go to the appendix and you have to go track down the appendix, was a pedestrian not in the trial. <laughs> uh, and the pedestrian not in the trial was killed by a person who was hypoglycemic driving the car. Um, but that's a cautionary tale. I mean, it, it, it's, 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 right? it's interesting. The cure can be worse than the disease. Yes. Uh, and it has ramifications that we don't uh, think about. Um, I think, I think so let me, at the, you know, try to... First of all, thank the panel, and I think I was correct in my assumption that we couldn't have gotten a better group of individuals to discuss this. And I think that probably just in listening, uh, to summarize that basically that this is interesting data, uh, the data will have some ramifications, but that care and thought must go into the treatment of any patient. Um, and again, I want to thank you, all of you who've listened, and again, thank the panel. You guys did a great job. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.